0: Welcome and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. We are a Southern Baptist church dedicated to seeking the glory of God by proclaiming the gospel in all that we do. If you would like more information, please visit our website at true vine baptist.org. gets glory that he should be getting. Um, This past Wednesday night, we had a, a church business meeting. It was a real good church business meeting. Um, First, kind of as a little parenthesis, we actually had some visitors um, who came Wednesday night that had never come to church before, and they stuck around and uh, observed the meeting. And uh, I I think visitors observing a church family conducting business with love and respect and humility is a real good witness. Um, That's not the main thing I want to say, but I think that was a helpful side note. But but the main thing I, I wanted to say is, What God has done has been a a, a tremendous answer to very specific prayers we've lifted up. And so I I know not everybody was there at the meeting and I want to make sure we, we see some of the things that's happened there. In the course of the whole building project, you know, there's various parts that are kind of complex. And one of those was how do we sell this building and then make a transition to the next? You know, we needed to sell this building. That's not a guarantee. Uh, We needed to get a good price. That's not a guarantee. And then a part that was really stressing me out um, was we got to transition from here into the next building and there would really be nice if there was a seamless kind of transition so we didn't have to like... Go back to the basement of the bank and have seven services on a weekend to make sure we all fit in there. Um, so, how do, you, how do you make all of that stuff happen? And so, you've probably figured out by now. Um, your leaders do not always know what to do. Um, when we don't know what to do, we pray. So, we prayed, we got specific, we ask you all to pray. And uh, there's a deal um, on the table. Pray for it to come to completion. But here here is some of the ways that God has answered that prayer. Not only do we have a buyer, we have a buyer that's been willing to pay a good price and is willing to let us stay here rent free until we transition to that next building, which just answers a whole lot of these requests that we have prayed. So um, I'm just really encouraged by that. Um, Those are the kinds of things God doesn't have to. We're not guaranteed that he's gonna say yes to requests like that. But in kindness, not only did he answer, He went beyond uh, what we answered. So uh, give thanks to God um, for some of those things. Be encouraged um, by God blessing and working. Uh, Some of the next part is uh, when we move from here and into the next place, uh, we've got some renovations we're going to do on this building to make it ready for the next. I'll tell you more about that in the future for today. Just give thanks. Give thanks. Rejoice in in the answers of prayers. Uh, Romans 12 Um, we're going to read three through eight, the primary verses we're considering are verses four and five, but let's begin in verse three. The word of God says, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let's pray. Our mighty and merciful God, as we think about what you have done in the great salvation you have worked, and in the creation of your church, We are amazed. We're amazed at the complexity. We're amazed at the power. We are really amazed that you're using us with all of our weakness, inadequacies, the flawed attempts we give at work. And somehow you take all that flawed work and you build your church. This amazes us. And so, Lord, we pray that as we consider this passage, you will help us to see your glory come to worship and fear you to be in awe at you. As we consider this amazing work of the creation of your church and the building of your church through your people in the work of the gospel. So, Lord, we pray, give us understanding. Give us understanding of this text. Help us to be able to think deeply on these truths and and for it to have the right effect on us, oh God, Uh, both of worship and then leading to obedience, oh God. So please call us into service, sanctify us, convict us, address the things in our lives that uh, that I'm not even going to mention, but in your ways, you just have a way of speaking and, and working in individual ways. Please bring it about. Any in the room or listening that has never been saved. I pray that you will bring them to faith in Christ. Please give grace to our little ones in the next room as they study your word. Bless the preaching and receiving of your word. We pray all this in Jesus name. Amen. Uh, Sometimes an ankle injury will lead to a limp over time. That limp may develop into some hip problems. The hip problems over time may lead into some back problems the back problems may lead into some neck problems. All of the pain of all of it may raise your blood pressure. Okay? The pessimist in me wants to say, and then you die. Because okay? this is <laughs> the way the body works. But, but, the, but the point is, the reason why one little part affects all the other members is because it's, it's united in, in one body. It's all connected in a body. Well, God has designed the church, You know, and, and let me clarify, the, the church, not a building, not this hunk of wood and drywall, not the very nice seal, steel structure out at the new place that's going up, uh, not, not a building, not a place, but the people of God. The blood-bought sons and daughters called by God, brought together the church invisible, we've been made like a body. We've been made like a body and because we've been made like a body, we function like a body. This is why 1 Corinthians 12 says that when one member suffers, all of the rest suffer with it. You've probably observed that when a a member uh, of the body falls, into some scandalous kind of sin, there's discouragement. There's disheartening that it brings. But on the same note, in a, in a happier sense, when a member of the body obeys God in some great faithful way through pain, when a member of the body gives great courage and, and exerts risk in order to, uh, to proclaim the name of Christ, there, there, there is an emboldening and empowering strengthening effect that it has on the rest of the body. The, the reason why this works is God made the church to be like a body. And, and the reason why all of this is the case, we've been made together as a body, is so that Jesus, our head, Will get the glory that he is worthy of as the body of Christ is built <laughs> up. And so, w- w- what does all of that mean? This this metaphor that the Holy Spirit led Paul to employ in this passage and some others, w- what what does it mean? How is that supposed to affect how I think, how I love, how I act, how I serve? That's what that's what we're going to consider. In this text here, Um, we are in this second point of chapter 12 uh, and it's addressing how we are to relate to our fellow believers and in your bulletins you see four major truths there we're ready for this second major truth in bold that is there how we are to relate to our fellow believers is as members of the same body so that's what we're considering I'll tell you a little bit more about kind of the structure of the, the text and how we're going to uh, look at this here in just a moment but first let me, let me make some kind of comments as, as we get started here. The, the Bible uses uh, poetic devices just all the time. A full one-third of the Bible is poetry. I've told you this before. If you're going to learn how to read and interpret the Bible, you've got to learn how to read poetry. And even in the sections that are not directly poetic, poetic devices are used. And and Paul here in this passage, he is using a poetic device. Uh, Paul, who, by the way, um, of all the biblical writers, is maybe the least poetic of all of the writers. He does still use the poetic device of illustrations, metaphors and and parables. And what he uses here is a metaphor. He says that the body, uh, excuse me, the, the church is like a body, the body of Christ. This isn't the only metaphor uh, that the Bible uses to explain the church. There are others, uh, things like the church is God's household. Uh, The the church is God's spiritual temple. We are a field. We are a city, etc. Every single one of these metaphors is meant to teach another dimension of what the church is uh, and and how we're supposed to function. Um, But we need to make sure we understand that. You know, If you're going to explain truth, not just any illustration will do. So if you're going to teach um, and you want to teach a truth, it's not just any illustration that rolls through your head that is okay. An illustration has to be appropriate that it accurately conveys truth. So for instance, if, if somebody was uh, teaching on the church and they said, you know, the church is kind of like a barnyard. You know, you got got cows over here. You got the pigs in this pen. You got chickens over here. And, you know, kind of everybody just needs to congregate with your kind to keep the peace and stay out of each other's business. That's a bad illustration, okay, because that does not accurately convey uh, the truth that God tells us about what the church is supposed to be. Not just any metaphor will work. It has to be a right one. So when the Bible uses a metaphor or a parable, we need to pay attention to why it is the right one. So we have here the metaphor that the church is like a body. So why is that used? What truths are are supposed to be communicated by this? Well, from this passage, I see see three truths um, that are here, three primary truths. In some other passages, there are more that are employed by the metaphor. But here I see three primary truths. First, the church, like a human body, is made up of a bunch of different parts, okay? So those parts look different, they function differently, they have different roles to play, but different parts. Secondly, all those parts have a union together. So in a human body, different parts uh, in the human body, they're all meant for the same end. The fingers don't work the same way that the ears do, but they are united in that they're a part of a body and the body has a great purpose. So fingers and ears work differently, but they are serving a greater purpose. So it is in the church. Different parts, but there is a union and part of the union is the purpose. And then, and then thirdly, it is meant, and in this text, it's, this one is not, um, a great detail is not given to it, but it is alluded to that we are the body of Christ. We're not just a body for a body's sake. And listen, we're not just called to unity for unity's sake. We are the body of Christ, meaning that's our union and that's the purpose of our unity. So what I want to do is I want to take the metaphor. I'm going to talk a little bit more about the metaphor and then take these three specific truths and spend some time talking about each one of them. So, before we move on to the specific truths, let me say a little bit more about the metaphor I- itself. You know, God has made our human bodies you know, in, in a remarkable kind of way. Psalm 139 says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, we are a display of God's glory. Um, our, our bodies are a work of art that is displaying the wisdom of God. When there was nothing, God designed all, all that is here. You know, I, I would do a lot of thinking about this whenever we um, had our babies. And I, I'd, be, I'd be holding this, this new little uh, package of the image of God and you're worried about this child, and so you're thinking through how the brain develops, the lung develops, all the parts and all the ways it goes. And when my wife was pregnant, we would kind of trace, you know, okay, well, this week the, the lungs are supposed to develop in this new kind of way, and you're you're following this, and it's just amazing as you consider. But part of what shows the glory of God in the design of the body is the complexity. It is amazing all the different functions and systems all coming together. Well So is the body of Christ. Each part is important for fulfilling the intended purpose of the body. You know, sometimes when uh, people have maybe say their gallbladder or their appendix removed, they'll be told, well, you don't really need it. And so sometimes people will say, well, I wonder why God put an organ in my body that I didn't really need. Well, let's hold up and make sure we understand there. Okay. Um, There are a lot of parts you can live without. You can live without your fingers. You can live without your tongue. Okay. But for the full function, according to God's design, Every single part is necessary uh, for the great goal. And and so it is in the church. You know, and on the human body, there will be parts that we really don't give a lot of priority to, like toenails, okay? But they're there for a purpose, okay? God put them there. And by the way, this also uh, alludes to the fact that some of the parts are primarily uh, for the purpose of beauty, okay? Like beards, for instance, okay? Yes, it does give me warmth in the winter and birds can nest in there and all those kinds of things, but mostly it is for beauty all year round, okay? God has made some of these parts, but what I mean is is, is in the body of Christ, we need, we need to bear this in mind. In God's creation at the beginning, um, he made some of the trees for food and some for the purpose of beauty. When the temple was constructed, there was uh, it was not just utilitarian. God made it beautiful. And in the body of Christ, In the church, you know, you remember that one of the things that God is doing with the church is he is showing his glory to the angels so that the angels look in and they fall on their faces and worship God. And so, yes, there's utilitarian function, but there's also meant to be this harmonious beauty that is shown and God's glory is demonstrated. The church can exist Without the full function of all of the gifts, but existence is not the same as thriving with fruit bearing excellence. God has designed the different parts of the body to function for his glory. Now, if I had more time, I'd love to take us to every place uh, in the New Testament where this metaphor is used. But let me just allude um, uh, to a few of them. This metaphor of the body, the church is the body, um, is used several times throughout the New Testament. And each time, the the reality of it is applied in some specific ways that address what's happening in that letter. So, So here's what I mean. In the book of Colossians, for instance, that church was battling a heresy that did not see Jesus for who he truly is. They did not see the supremacy of Jesus as the divine son of God, God of God and light of lights. And so there Paul employs the metaphor of the church is the body of Christ. But then he makes this application. He emphasizes Jesus is the head of the church. He sits in the place of prominence, rule and authority. He directs. So you see same metaphor, but it's applied to the circumstance there. In the book of Ephesians, Uh, there's a section of Ephesians. Pastor Ben has showed us that is addressing what the gospel has done. And so there's that section in in the first part of chapter two uh, where we are shown here's what uh, God has done in Christ. Here's what the the cross has accomplished. It has brought vertical reconciliation. And then starting in the latter part of chapter two, it gets into the horizontal reconciliation. Okay. That God has made the many members to be like one, the body of Christ over in first Corinthians 12, there is the most extensive explanation of the metaphor. Uh, in first Corinthians 12, uh, there is a, a full explanation there. Uh, Of this metaphor and truths that are there, you you, you would get more benefit out of today's message if later this afternoon you'd read that chapter and see more of what's addressed. But but let let me show you here in Romans its primary purpose. We are being shown here in this section how we are to relate to fellow believers, Uh, How we are to relate to fellow believers and sisters and brothers and sisters in Christ. And the point he's about to make is you relate to your fellow believers in Christ. You are to serve them. In fact, you are not just to serve them. You, You are to live a life that is devoted to serving your brothers and sisters in Christ. You are to work. You are to toil. This is worth it. You are to labor with eagerness and excellence for the building up of the church. But before he says that, he tells us verses four and five, which actually adds some weight and power to the instruction he's about to give. So you can see he could have just skipped right to verse six to start to tell us what to do. But before he tells us the instructions, he, te- he explains this beautiful truth that the church is like the body of Christ and we are united together. And then he says, so serve one another. So if you you notice what he says here in four and five, showing the metaphor, it adds weight and power to the instructions, the commands he's about to give in the coming verses. So there's the metaphor. Now let's spend some time talking through these, these three truths that I said are, are mentioned in the text. So here is the first The church is composed of many different parts. By God's design, not all Christians are alike. Not all Christians are exactly the same. Now, one distinction that I want to make sure that I'm pointing out here is when I say Christians, I am referring to true Christians, There is a difference between someone who is truly a Christian, who is truly right with God because they have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus to be saved. They have been justified, forgiven of their sins. There's a difference between that and then someone who calls themselves a Christian, but as James says, they are deluded. So we, we we need to make clear here that as we are talking about the church, we are talking about the true church And not every group of people that calls themselves a church is a true church. And we're talking about true Christians. But not all Christians are the same. On purpose. God designed um, not everybody to be like you. We need to learn to rejoice in that. We need to learn to be able to see God's glory in the complexity of how he designed the church. You know, sometimes in some immaturity, we can kind of get to thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And we can kind of look around and be like, you know, more people should just be like me. Thank God they're not, okay? God has designed the body with a lot of different variation, with different gifts. Um, And even more than just the fact that the complexity of the body, the various parts displays God's glory, where the text is going, Is that it's speaking to each one of us, and there is a conviction that the scripture wants us to come to. And the conviction is I am a part of the body of Christ, and I have a role to fulfill. I am to work. There there is some function that God wants me to fulfill. I need to figure out what that is and I need to begin to give effort into the ways that he has designed me. Listen, the body of Christ limps if one of the legs will not participate. The body of Christ suffers when some of the parts will not engage in work. The church is designed to flourish when everybody, every part is fulfilling the ways that God has designed us. Now, um, you know that we see from time to time that what has become sort of the customary uh, model uh, of church in America, where the, the pastor or a staff of professionals, everybody thinks of them as those are the people who minister and it's everybody else's job to show up, receive and then go home. That is entirely unbiblical. It's entirely unbiblical. It is not God's design. The language of the New Testament, places like Ephesians 4, is that um, some of the body parts' job is to speak. Some of the body parts' job is to lead. Those who speak and lead have the role and function of equipping all of the other members equipping and training so that all of the believers are fulfilling the work of ministry. That is just straight out of Ephesians 4. And so the way it's designed to be is that it's not just like two ministers of the gospel or you think of, you know, whatever, every leader, like 10 ministers of the gospel. No, it's supposed to be 150. supposed to be 150 ministers of the gospel that is happening here. And, And we even need, We need it all. We even need things like, you know, every personality level that God creates. We need things like younger families making babies and raising babies. Yay, teen, we are doing well with that, okay? (laughs) Younger families making babies, raising babies to fear God and to know his word. But we also need gray-haired believers who bring much needed wisdom to the body of Christ. To do it, 1 Timothy 2 says, older men to teach younger men and older women to teach younger women. We need elderly shut-ins, fulfilling the very powerful work of devoting their lives to prayer. We, we, We need it all to be functioning and every place we're missing something, there is a lack. And so, you know, thus far application, see this, Christian. You have a role to play in the church of your savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You have work that you are to be doing. If you do not work, if you do not engage, then it means one of two things. It either means that somebody else is pulling weight that you should be pulling. Somebody else is trying to fulfill their gifting and yours. Or it might just be that it's not happening at all. And either one of those is not desirable. The more believers who are fulfilling their function in the body of Christ, the more flourishing and thriving there will be. The more souls will be saved. The more believers in the church will be built up. The more our children um, who do not yet know Christ will be brought into the family of Christ. The more we will show the glory of God to the nations, Um, in the, uh, by by the work of the gospel, the building up of the body of Christ. Well, here's the second truth. The different parts all have a union together. Now now notice how this is shown to us in the text. There's 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 a big emphasis on this in the New Testament. So read through verses four and five with me and watch for the union. So he says, just as we have many members, there's the first truth, okay, are in, all right, one, Body, by the way, that, that language comes up throughout the New Testament. One church, one baptism, one bread that we eat, one savior, one God. So in one body and all the members do not have the same function. So we who are many are one body in Christ. So all that is clear. But I want you to watch this last phrase. This is the phrase that I find the most compelling in this. Individually, members, one of another. We are members one of another. By the way, this is where the language in our culture of membership comes from. Not just Romans 12, but also 1 Corinthians Corinthians 12 as well. You know, this is another concept the world has taken from the church. The YMCA has membership. Boy Scouts, Kiwanis, unions, etc. They have membership and, and, and they get this from the church. This is one of the places, not the only, but it's one of the places that we see in the New Testament, um, why membership matters. So where do we get the concept of church membership? What, why do we make a big deal here um, in their, on this church of church membership? It's because of what the New Testament shows. It's a big deal to be a member of a church. Um, If you join the church and we believe that you ought to, uh, we we believe that this is fitting with God's design for what the church is supposed to be. If you join this church, we're going to meet together about four times. And one of the things I'm going to do is I'm going to talk through the significance of church membership and, and what it means in later places in the New Testament, go into greater detail of why, but consider this, we are members one of another. What this means is that this is a reality in the heavenly places. There is this reality. You are connected to every other person who has received Jesus as Lord. This is another aspect of your salvation. A reconciliation has taken place. The cross has brought to you who are in Christ. It has brought first, vertical reconciliation. You were enemies of God and you have been reconciled to God, but it has also brought a horizontal reconciliation. You are united to every other person that has been uh, saved by the blood of Christ. You know, if you think about it, mankind was at the beginning created to live in harmony. That was ruined at the fall because at the fall, selfish sinful pride and such, entered into human hearts, okay? And selfish sinners can't get along with each other, okay? Look at what's happening with Russia and Ukraine and every war of history, what's happening? Well, we could talk about some immediate things, but the deeper root the Bible shows us is, it's the flesh, it's sin, it's selfish sinners warring against each other. The cross has brought a reconciliation between every person who receives Jesus. There is a true and heavenly reconciliation. Listen to me, even whenever we don't live it out as we should. There is a reconciliation and it's another one of those, the Bible says, now go live like it, go do it. So listen to me, Christian. In the kingdom of heaven, you are going to sit at a table. You're going to sit at a real big table with every other person who has been bought by the blood of Christ and we will sit down and feast together as brothers and sisters. The Bible says, act like it now. We are gonna gather around the throne of our God and to the Lamb and we will fall together, we will cast our crowns, we will, like we sang this morning and man, the singing this morning was good. We are gonna sing together with every other believer, the thief on the cross, Moses, Moses, And that believer that you don't get along with very well. We're going to sing together to our God and we will sing together as brothers. And part of the call, the New Testament is act like that. There is a reconciliation that the cross has brought. There is a union. Now, a lot of times it does not appear like it though, that there is a union. Two weeks ago, um, I was in a pastors and leaders meeting that was just awful uh, sat there and it was like a room of squabbling toddlers talking about controversial subjects and as I sat in that room longing for the sweet relief of death to free me <laughs> from that meeting, I really did think this thought because I've been meditating on this text here. The thought did strike me as I'm looking around here and there's that kind of thought of like this is not how it's supposed to be. This thought did help me though. Th- these brothers who are in this room and we are having controversy over difficult subjects At the end of the day, when we leave this room, we have the same hope of eternity. And we are rallied around the same cause. When we leave this room, we are going to go home and give our efforts to the exaltation of the name of Jesus. And we are the one group in the world that is committed that we're going to forgive each other. It's part of the definition of being a Christian, Jesus said. And so even though that meeting did not feel very harmonious... At the end of the day, there is still a reconciliation that has taken place. We are to work so that that reconciliation is made evident and beautiful to the angels and to the world. But it is there. We are united. What is amazing is that somehow in all of our messiness, in all of our inadequacies, in all of our flawed labor, I look at a meeting like that and I think, how could any good come? God takes the flawed labor and Jesus builds his church. We're studying church history right now. And one of the things that that is going to become evident is how did the church ever grow? Look how messed up everybody is. Jesus takes the flawed labor and he uses his people to build his church. It is amazing. That doesn't give us an excuse to just go with it. We ought to be built up to excellence as much as we can. But I'll remind you something that we said back in uh, Romans 8, whenever we talked about the doctrine of adoption. We have a union with every single other child of God, but union is not the same as unity. We have a union. We're called to unity. Now listen very carefully. This is kind of an important statement. Unity is unity of belief, unity of purpose, and unity of peace. Now that's just, that's not just my convenient definition. I get that from the book of Philippians. Okay. There's other places we're called to be of the same mind, uh, rallied around the same uh, purpose. And then he tells us to pursue peace with one another. So true unity is unity of belief, unity of purpose and unity of uh, peace. We need to see that in the context of our specific local church. You know, so we have a local church family here and this is where all of that is most visible. All the body parts and the union and pursuing unity. This is where we do that most of the time on a regular basis. But I also want you to see this. There is a way we are to pursue unity in the broader um, body of Christ outside of just these walls. And I think we can see some of that in this text here. So when Paul wrote to various churches. When Paul wrote the letter to the Corinthians, he wrote to a church that he planted and he had an intimate connection with those believers. He he provided the leadership and instruction of an apostle. When Paul wrote to the Philippian Christians, he wrote to a church that he did not plant, but he had met them and he provided the leadership of of an apostle. When Paul wrote to the Roman Christians... These are Christians Paul had never even seen their faces before. He had never met them. And yet how does he speak? We are the body of Christ and we are individually members one of another. And so it's just, you probably already knew this, but it is emphasizing the fact that we have a connection to every other and we are to pursue unity with the rest of the body of Christ. So we're joined in a family, but there's also a way that this whole body parts thing fits in a broader way. You know, you'll notice that sometimes churches, an individual church unit will serve the kingdom of God in a way that kind of their way, their wheelhouse, it's different than another church. And even some of that is designed by God. You know, I, I think that faithful Presbyterians, and I'm I'm emphasizing gospel faithful Presbyterians, in general do a better job at uh, teaching instruction and Christian education than Baptists do in general. And I think a lot of times faithful Baptists Do a better job of going out and working, um, uh, doing missions, feeding the hungry, disaster relief, service to community, etc., than, say, the average Presbyterian church. This is all generalities, of course, but understand that even in some of those things, It is all part of different body parts functioning. Of course, we need to try to be uh, as as excellent in all of the gifts as we possibly can. But somehow Jesus is working all of this out. But one, one of the things I'm trying to emphasize is we are often tempted to despise other body parts. We're tempted to despise other gifts because sometimes in immaturity, I only see my own and I think mine's the best and everybody should be like me. And instead we should see there is something glorious here in all of the ways that God has designed this. Now let me let me draw let me draw a couple more principles out of this. The concept of the union and how God's designed it. Uh, Christian, you know, let me let me make clear you and I may not have contempt for a brother in Christ. We may not have contempt we will disagree with christians and there is a there is a uh, function that we have of correcting errors but disagreement it is not to be done with uh, despising them in our hearts. There is a way that we are to disagree and even correct. And sometimes we have to disagree vehemently, but we are not to have contempt in our heart for other believers. So that goes for other denominations. You know, if we determine, you know, if we, if we uh, say this, this is true believers in Christ, we do not have the right to despise them. Okay. First John 2, 11, the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness Uh, Several other times in that one book, he emphasizes that right there. By by the way, this includes um, the the, the whole discussion of the weaker believers, the weaker brethren. Um, In chapter 14, where we're coming up to, I've had some... Light bulb moments of some of the things that God teaches there, and it's it's been helping me see some things and adjust some of the ways that I've been uh, operating. One of the things, one of the big subjects there in chapter fourteen is how we are to serve and minister to the weaker believers. And one of the things that comes out there is we're not to have contempt for them. Th- that we are to serve and minister to them in humility, in gentleness, and in care. You know, there's a time we got to be hard nosed like Jesus did towards the Pharisees. And then there's a time, there are times we need to be gentle. And then there's times of all the variation, but it takes discernment to know when I'm supposed to be hard nosed and when I'm supposed to be gentle. And we ought not get those confused. That thought has been bringing me some conviction of some ways that I've gotten those confused in the past. But we are to serve one another. before I get too far off subject. Let me bring us back here. We We have a union. And, and by the way, if you think of this, if unity, if true unity is unity of belief, unity of purpose and unity of peace, then that means that when we engage in the work of correcting errors, sometimes people say, you should just leave that doctrine alone and just pursue unity. No, don't you see that is pursuing unity. If we are looking to correct error, we are addressing unity as we study church history in Sunday school. A big part of church history is studying the church battling heresy, the church battling error. There's a wrong way of thinking that says you ought to just leave some of those things along, alone for the sake of peace and unity. No, that is the church working for unity. But here this part as well clearly. We do have to do it in the right kind of way. We do have to do it in the right kind of way. We are called to humility, uh, gentleness in the appropriate kinds of times and for it to be done in love. But you've probably seen this within the church and in broader ways. A lot of times there is tension between different body parts, between different gifts of the spirit. You know, another oversimplification and one that we can see that happens sometimes between churches but even within a, a single church, there are some believers who are gifted with theological discernment. You know, they study the Bible hard. Uh, they know about heresies. Uh, they, they, they are, uh, they're well versed. Uh, that they, they are able to teach and warn the church about errors in doctrines and such. Thank God. And sometimes there's another group of Christians and their primary gifting is that they are you know, just really kind-hearted servants. They're always looking for ways to try to uh, work to serve other people, Uh, real, real patient and humble at times. They're baking meals for people. They're sending cards. And you've probably noticed that sometimes, sometimes, it's not the way it's supposed to be, but sometimes this group and this group have some tension towards one another. And it's sometimes the theologically discerning uh, look at the kind-hearted servants and they think, you know, you, you need to be studying your Bible more. You know, why, why, why aren't you more in the know? And the kind-hearted servants are looking at the theologically discerning and saying, why don't you get off your chair and go do something? We need to understand that there is a way that God has designed this for the full function. Now, don't misunderstand. The kind-hearted servants need to be reading their Bibles. The theologically discerning need to be giving effort. But when in what you flourish in, What you're good at, what you're talented in, this is designed by God. And the two groups need to spend time with each other, rubbing off on each other. You'll also notice that sometimes a church will become defined by maybe one gift or another. So to oversimplify, sometimes there are churches that just become defined by theological discernment and study. And they don't do much. And then another church will be defined by uh, a kind-hearted, winsome kind of attraction to the community, but they are are very unguarded and undiscerning in theological things. What we want to happen is for, to build churches where all of the gifts are flourishing and to see that each part is contributing something. You know, and, and so when it comes to like the theologically discerning, they are often the guards for others in the church that are not as well versed and who are struggling to understand heresies and dangers and errors. We need to be able to see one another's gifts and the weakness that comes with the gift. Because this is oftentimes the case. And not despise them, but see, I'm to fill in the gaps. So this gift right here has some ways they struggle we need to try to fill in the gap for where there is a weakness that comes along with the strength. And all of us seek to be growing and appreciating the gifts that God has given. And by the way, a connected thought with this, the true test of a church's fellowship and unity is is whether or not you will fellowship with others who are not just like you, and who maybe your personality doesn't immediately jive with. You know, if younger believers will only fellowship with other younger believers, if older believers will only fellowship with older believers, if the theologically discerning will only fellowship with like-minded, if the, if the kind-hearted servants only fellowship with themselves and they look at everybody else and there's and with disgust and there are factions, that's not true unity, even though you may have some really good friendships in the church. True fellowship and true unity is when we are willing to fellowship with people that maybe I don't immediately connect with. And it takes a little bit of work to overlook some things. You know, churches can be some hard nuts to crack when when it comes to new believers and new visitors. You know, and, and one of the reasons why is because... You know, I I love the fact here that, you know, when when service is over, you know, we know we ain't getting out of here for 45 minutes to an hour. I love it. okay? because deep friendships get built. That is wonderful. I encourage you to invest more time into deep friendships with people that you really connect with because you need that. But we also need to be careful that our fellowship is not just with the people that we immediately connect with. There is to be room for reaching out and having some fellowship and unity with others as well and loving them and seeing the ways that God has designed the body to be different. We are a body. So love and appreciate the various parts that God has made. And then here's the third truth and I'll address it very quickly. We are the body of Christ. We're not just a people who are called to unity just for unity's sake. I'm going to tell you, it never works. When a group tries to have unity just to be unified, it never works. Okay. Because true unity is unity of belief, unity of purpose, and a unity of peace. You know, the world around us these days never stops talking about racial reconciliation And they're always given this call to unity, to unity, to unity. And, and, And listen to me very carefully. I want that unity. But you need to understand the only way it's going to happen is through the gospel. Because unity just for unity's sake, it's never going to work. It doesn't actually happen. What the cross has done is made a way for actual reconciliation and unity to come. Our unity church is that we are the body of Christ. You may have a lot of things in common with other believers here. You you might uh, share uh, similar hobbies, root for some of the same sports teams, find similar foods you like to eat in similar family and life situations. None of those things though is the heart of our fellowship and unity. What unites us is that we are the body of Christ and we glorify God, we exalt the name of Jesus by building up his body. When the body of Christ is built up, and that means the whole package of things, lost people are being saved, believers are being raised up and sanctified, leaders are being sent out to go plant churches, do missions, and all of this is functioning when the body of Christ is built up, the name of Christ is lifted high. And the name of Christ is lifted high to the world, to us towards one another, to the angels, and even to the demons. And all in all of it God is glorified. Jesus our head is magnified. So Christian, the call here is toil, labor, engage. We'll see more about that in some of the weeks to come. But if you're here this morning or listening to us and you have never turned to Christ to be saved, something you need to know is that you are not a part of the true church yet. See, there is the invisible church that God knows those who are his. He knows intimately the names of everyone who is truly right with him. What you need is to be saved. Listen to me, just coming and attending church or even joining a church does not mean that you are a part of the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ who will one day be in heaven. That comes, membership in that church, comes by receiving Christ, receiving Him, embracing Him as your Lord, your Savior, your prophet, your priest, your King, Owning him and trusting in him. If you want to talk to somebody about that, find me before you leave and, and I'll pray with you uh, about salvation in Christ. But let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we love you and we express all and gratitude for how you are working in this world. Lord, we see the beauty and, and we want to live in light of it. So I pray that you'll help us to do that. Help us to live with a a joyful laboring in the body of Christ. And I pray for this specific body. Please build us up. Where we're lacking, I pray, oh God, you'll supply. Where there are members who are not working, I pray that you will so compellingly draw them that they long to work and work with excellence. Increase the quantity, increase the quality, Bless us, O God, to be a a healthy, thriving, fruit-bearing church family, and we pray that you will be exalted as it happens. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.